Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and in this series, we took you through the past, present, and future of food and nutritional science in the previous episode, And in this episode, which is the second of two devoted to YJBM's June 2018 issue on nutrition and food scientists, um, we'll we'll interview uh, a Yale faculty member. You can find all our podcasts and the June 2018 issue on YJBM's website or PubMed. I am Neil Ravindra, a fourth-year graduate student in the Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry Department at Yale and the managing editor of YJBM. And I'm your co-host, Amelia Hallworth, a first-year graduate student in the microbiology program at Yale. And with us today to talk about a really fascinating connection between many different fields, uh, but of course related to food and and diet, is Dr. David Haffler, professor of at least neurology and immunobiology. But but why don't we let you tell us uh, who you are and what you do? Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So I kind of wonder sometimes what I am, but I'm, in essence, uh, a physician scientist. And that is my career uh, has been around trying to understand human disease uh, and the biology behind it. And and the fundamental model that we use uh, is to try to understand basic biology by using nature's experiments of human disease to provide insight uh, into fundamental biologic processes. Uh, In my current role, I had spent 29 years uh, in Boston at the Harvard Medical School and was recruited here now 10 years ago to chair the Department of Neurology. But as I was being recruited, I pointed out to the dean that though I am a clinical neurologist, I'm really an immunologist uh, and with a deep interest in inflammation of the central nervous system. uh, And thus, uh, whereas my clinical activities are in neurology, particularly around multiple sclerosis, my laboratory is very much a part of immunobiology here at Yale. That's That's a really interesting way to describe yourself as a scientist in general. But I guess... It's a people probably aren't too familiar with inflammation in the brain and neuroimmunology specifically. Do you want to? How would you describe that? Sure. Well, traditionally, neuroimmunology was the field of multiple sclerosis. It was very clear. So I began my interest uh, in MS uh, as a freshman in college uh, at Emory College back in 1970, and I knew I was interested in immunology. In fact, my interest in immunology uh, goes back to childhood. I was fascinated by the blood uh, and, um, and began to read textbooks about uh, hematology, but it wasn't really the red cells that interest me. It was the white blood cells. Think of it from the perspective of an 11-year-old, little Pac-Man running around eating up bacteria. I really found it interesting. And in, in fact, just a little aside, I was moving my mother about three weeks ago, and I uh, was interested in doing photomicrography and actually set up a little toy microscope with a camera, and I stuck myself with a pin and made a blood smear and took a picture of it uh, back in the elementary school. And my mother found the picture, I now have it, uh, of my blood um, that I took back then. So there was always a very strong interest in, in immunology. Uh, then I became interested in neuroscience. How could you not be interested in the brain and how it works? So to put that together, uh, it became multiple sclerosis. So I have spent my whole career attempting to understand how the adaptive immune system uh, can lead to uh, this disease that we see in clinic, the most common neurologic disease of young adults, a multiple sclerosis. So that is where much of neuroimmunology was um, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. The surprise of neuroimmunology has been the involvement of the immune system in other disease processes and, in fact, in neurodevelopment. 
beautiful work from a colleague in, in Boston, Beth Stevens, has shown that the innate immune system, not adoptive T cells, but microglia, a type of um, monocyte or macrophage that is resident in the brain, is involved in synaptic pruning. That is, as the nervous system develops uh, and as one gets signals for which connections should stay and not stay, uh, these microglia are involved in actually pruning the synapses so that you have the right connections. That was a big surprise. Another big surprise in the field of neuroimmunology, very broadly, was the finding that schizophrenia uh, may is a, has a strong genetic component. Many of the genes relate to the immune system, including MHC uh, and complement. Uh, and uh, other work uh, has shown that a lack of synaptic pruning by microglia in the complement system may lead to too many synapses associated with schizophrenia. Then we have the field of Alzheimer's disease, uh, where it's been uh, now shown that the microglia uh, are involved in removing the amyloid plaque, and there are certain molecules involved in the monocyte function, particularly a molecule uh, studied here by Jaime Grutzlander called TREM2, which if defective leads to a much worse form of Alzheimer's. So we know that the innate immune system plays a very central role in neuroinflammation. So this has become a very important area of investigation past the obvious disease of, of multiple sclerosis. Um, before we go too much farther, would you mind giving like a quick uh, description of what multiple sclerosis is? Sure. For people like me who didn't know much about it. Sure. So we now know that uh, that MS uh, is an autoimmune disease. So what do we know about the disease? Our lab, um, a part of our, our lab and a larger consortium, which I first uh, developed up in Boston, called the International MS Genetic Consortium, uh, has identified the genetic basis for the disease. We now have 233 common variants, uh, eight rare variants associated with risk of developing the disease. So know there's a strong autoimmune component. If you take those genetic variants and compare them to individuals with other autoimmune diseases, it turns out that MS looks most like Crohn's disease and celiac disease, getting to our future topic of food and nutrition. So we know that MS uh, uh, is the genetic variants involve predominantly the immune system. They don't appear to involve the nervous system. Uh, and we, we now know that there are autoreactive T cells in the blood which recognize myelin, uh, which are markedly increased in patients with MS. These myelin-reactive T cells are activated. They secrete inflammatory cytokines, uh, and we believe that is what drives the disease. If we take uh, a T cell from a patient with MS, take that T cell receptor, put it into a mouse with the right uh, so-called restricting element, MHC, the animal spontaneously develop uh, a inflammatory disease which looks almost identical to MS. So we believe it's an autoimmune disease uh, initiated by autoreactive T cells. And the question becomes, what are the environmental factors which lead to the activation of those cells? So we know the gene, the genetic basis of the disease. Uh, we know it's autoimmune. We know it fits in that cluster of autoimmune diseases. We know they're activated autoreactive T cells. And most importantly, we know that if we turn off those activated T cells, now most prominently by getting rid of B cells, which appeared to be the critical cells for turning on the T cells, you can basically stop relapses. So uh, this has been a major advance in the disease. The paper was published uh, by colleagues of mine, a large consortium, which we were not part of, but we've now become very active in trying to understand why does B cell depletion work so well. So we can basically shut down the disease by treating it early on with B cell depletion, which is really a major uh, advance. So I'd summarize the disease as um, it's not bad genes. They're good genes that fight off infection, fight off cancer. It's not a bad environment, but it's a bad interaction between genes and the environment, again, in a genetically susceptible host, which leads to this autoimmune disease. I love your I love your answer because it's so mechanistic, and you talk your answer about MS is the way you see it seems to be entirely molecular mechanisms, which is great. But what what's it like for the patient? I mean, uh, well, that's the other part which I also <laughs> greatly enjoy. 
when I started uh, in the 1970s, began my residency in 1978, uh, we had really no treatments for the disease. So if you were diagnosed with MS, uh, there was not much we could do for you. In fact, uh, for those of you interested in becoming uh, um, or interested in becoming physicians, the field of neurology has evolved tremendously from where I began in the 70s to where we are now, going from a field with relatively few therapeutic options to a field that's very therapeutically driven, and MS being a prime example, uh, but other diseases such as stroke, and also there in, in myasthenia gravis and other uh, d- diseases, Parkinson's disease, we have uh, amazing new therapies for the disease. So from the patient's perspective, uh, as I say to patients, my job is to make you have the happiest life you can, and now what we're doing, we'll put patients on these treatments very early on. Uh, one of the major questions in the field of MS research is if you stop the disease early, that is, stop the exacerbations, uh, which can involve, for example, numbness and tingling, loss of vision in an eye, weakness of a limb, difficulty with bladder function, these are common early symptoms. If we stop that, do we stop the secondary neurodegenerative portion of the disease? And uh, that, to me, is the major question. We can stop inflammation. We've gotten good at doing that. But uh, what we have not been good at doing is growing back brain. That's been damaged. And we know that early on in MS, there can be damage to the nervous system. So it's the matter of being a physician and caring for patients, answering their questions, and most importantly, getting them on treatment early. I should add a whole other branch of, of that's evolving, and uh, which is more than just neuroimmunology, is the whole field, of course, of cancer biology. The fact that uh, there are uh, cancers evolve, uh, unlike in autoimmune disease, where you have immune cells attacking self, cancers have evolved to survive to evade the immune system and express a decoy or molecules such as PD-1, ligand, uh, and such, which or CD155, these are ligands which can turn off the immune system. And one of the big advances in the whole field of, of medicine has been the ability to turn off these negative uh, signals, so-called checkpoint inhibitors, to allow the immune system to attack tumors. And I mentioned that in the context of neuroimmunology uh, because we're now doing clinical trials with these uh, treating brain tumors, trying to get the immune cells into the brain and to attack the tumors. And we've not yet had success, but we have some ideas of which pathways we should be targeting. So that's a whole other area of neuroimmunology, which has become really central now that we've figured out MS. So it seems that uh, neurology and immunology and food science have all been studied as pretty separate fields for a long time. And then recently, they've all kind of connected into like one big interdisciplinary area of study. Is there any particular reason for the timing of this? Has there been some kind of technical breakthrough that's allowed this interdisciplinary work to happen? Well, of course, some of it is the random walk, but I think most importantly is the microbiome. And uh, what, so we've known for a long time that about 90% of the immune system is in the gut. Uh, And we've known that uh, uh, we've uh, sort of made a pact with the devil to 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 survive, and that pact is we need uh, it relates to energy, and and uh, taking um, starch and sugar and fats and processing it into energy. It's always about energy, and so the deal we made is with bacteria that uh, we have this uh, canal that go through us, this tube, which starts in the mouth and becomes the esophagus, stomach, intestines, and and such, uh, and it's really outside of the body. And uh, through there, we are colonized with bacteria, which we count on to processing uh, our food and turning it into energy. That's the pact we made. Trouble is, uh, those bacteria, if they escape this tube, which may be inside of us, but it's really outside of us, uh, and if they escape this tube and go into the body, uh, you'll die of sepsis. These are very toxic bacteria. So therefore, a good part of the immune system, a majority of the immune system, is in the gut to work out this deal to keep the bacteria 
contained there within the gut and intestines to process food. If you get rid of them, get rid of the lymphocytes, neutrophils, by giving high doses of chemotherapy, for example, you then begin having leakage of bacteria. This is a well-known phenomenon in medicine, where if the white count goes too low, the bacteria will leak right into the blood and you will die. So there's this constant equilibrium between the gut uh, and the bacteria in terms of keeping them in check. And we have another phenomenon known as oral tolerance, something that we've studied extensively over the past 20, 30 years. So uh, it turns out about 1% of the proteins that take in by mouth uh, go in uh, through this tube, through the intestines, into your bloodstream. Well, why don't you have immune responses to those bacteria, I mean, to those proteins? In fact, you do. Uh, but rather than having a positive immune response, you have tolerance. It's called oral tolerance. So if I were to feed either of you, mm, pick a protein of choice, uh, you will develop tolerance to that protein. And if I then inject the protein under your skin with an adjuvant, you will not respond to it because you've been tolerized to that protein. We tried to take advantage of that to treat autoimmune disease by feeding myelin proteins. It worked really well in animal models. The phase three clinical trial didn't work, but the concept is still an interesting one. So you have this, these bacteria in the gut need to be contained. You have proteins coming in which are altering, uh, which are going into the system, which you need to tolerize your immune response to. And then you have, again, this factory of bacteria, which are making metabolites. These metabolites escape out of the intestines into your body. And there's a whole literature developing on metabolomics uh, coming out of the bacteria that, again, are these factories and all the byproducts uh, of these factories, butyric acid and others, which are involved in regulating the immune response. Yeah, so so oral tolerance then matters. Diet will in, influence your oral, oral tolerance, right? And, yes. And also, um, you know, kind of to what extent do you think that your diet will influence the microbiome? I mean, where is that, especially with respect to myelin and, and other autoimmune diseases, specifically in the brain? Well, in terms of the microbiome, uh, the question is what influences the microbiome? You know, part of it relates to how you're born, a vaginal or cesarean birth, because going through the vaginal canal begins to succeed, uh, to seed uh, the, uh, the flora. It changes over time. There's a great deal of literature. In, there are people who know a lot more about this than I do. Uh, but there is a whole process of seeding the flora in the gut, which is very well controlled. And the question is, what are environmental influences? Well, certainly antibiotics uh, change the flora. But, but when you become an adult, it begins to go back to where it was. Um, we recently, um, a number of investigators, and we have recent preliminary data in humans, uh, that there are a number of food substances which can alter uh, the microbiome. Uh, for example, salt, which we can talk about in a moment, clearly has a major effect on the, con on the constituency of the bacteria in, in the gut. And there are also um, just the whole environmental, uh, the whole environmental milieu that you grow up in very much dictates the microbiome. And I think the related to autoimmune disease, probably the most eloquent paper on this was published last year in Cell by Romnick Xavier, a colleague who's at, uh, at the Broad Institute. And Romnick looked at populations in Finland, Estonia, and Russia, and incidence of type 1 diabetes, <coughs> excuse me, also an autoimmune disease. And Romnick found that, well, we know that the diet, that the hygiene, for example, in Russia uh, and Estonia is quite different from that in Finland. Uh, and uh, the microbiome is very different between the two. The incidence of type 1 diabetes is about 10 times higher in Finland compared to, for example, Russia. And he mapped that to differences in the microbiome and to metabolites from the bacteria that were different, which were influencing the immune system. There's a very clear example of two populations that are virtually identical genetically, which have very different environment in terms of cleansiness uh, and hygiene with two very different uh, colonizations of bacteria with different metabolites and a very different instance of autoimmune disease. 
So would you say that looking at the effect of diet on disease, is that a field that's overstudied or understudied, or maybe that's just not a good question and we should be focusing on these bacteria more? Uh, I don't really. So I, um, you, know, you are what you eat. I didn't make that up. Someone else <laughs> said that. Um, well, it's hard to say what's overstudied and understudied. Uh, we, um, I, I think understanding the, the issue is, so let me did take a step back. So figuring out the genes that cause autoimmune disease was relatively easy to do. Um, it took um, many tens of millions of dollars. It took us uh, 18 years, but it was a very tractable problem. We looked at 48,000, now 48,000 patients, 58,000 controls, so we could do that with great certainty. Uh, environmental influences are much more difficult to study, particularly studying humans. So think of the issues that are there. So if we study micro, if we study the gut flora, we study stools. Well, that's the end product, no pun intended. What you really want to do is to study uh, the stool and the ileum and, and jugenum is probably where you want to go. That's not easy to get access to in humans. Uh, you have new technology. You asked about technologies. Well, the ability to sequence the microbiome has had a major impact in our understanding of what's there, and particularly new sequencing methods. So when I went to medical school in 1974. We knew there were E. coli. That's about all we knew because you can grow the E. coli from the gut. There are a few other things that can get there when you were sick, like salmonella and other such things. Well, once we started sequencing, we realized that that was the tip of the iceberg. That gave us, I mean, to me, the big discovery in all of this is the ability to sequence bacteria that were very difficult or impossible to grow to give us a true look at what's there and understanding at a deep level as to what are the constituents of the microbiome, how different environments influence the microbiome. Uh, and what metabolites are being made, and probably the metabolites are much more important than what's there, uh, is just the tool of just coming online to do that. So uh, is it understudy, overstudy? Um, a lot of people study microbiome now, but we have a lot to answer in understanding it. Yeah, so I, I'm actually, just since we have you here, I'm kind of curious about, I mean, immunology in general is such a, an exciting field right now, I think, and especially as a young scientist, I kind of want to know. I mean, is it is it too not overstudied, but is it too hot to some extent? And <laughs> and, and sort of sort of related sort of related to that is, um, you know, I mean, what extent do you think that there is promising basic science research left in there? Because a lot of the approach you've described is taking the disease and then by understanding what's going on with the disease to understand what's going on with the basic biology and the normal. Uh, condition. And is, is that like a really promising approach or is there a really big gap in kind of understanding how the immune system works in, in, in the normal state, not in right. Well, let's, yeah, let's yeah. go to the normal state. Yeah. Um, so questions get answered. And, and what, what, as for, for those of you who are entering science, what you get the big bucks for is picking the right area to study. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so... Uh, <laughs> I, I trained with Henry Kunkel uh, when I finished my residency. And uh, Kunkel, back in the 60s, was able to give an example, was able to recognize the fact that if you take um, protein from a patient with a disease called multiple myeloma, you take the serum, you can isolate monoclonal populations of antibodies. It was a cancer where the plasma cells were making tons of antibodies, and by purifying them, uh, his laboratory, Jerry Edelman's laboratory, was able to elucidate the structure of immunoglobulins. So in 1950s, early 60s, that was a big problem, and then won the Nobel Prize for that work. Uh, but problems get solved, and the structure of immunoglobulins would not be a great thing to study now. It's been well resolved. There are thousands of crystal structures of antibodies. Always questions to answer. Uh, when I was a, a young, uh, starting my postdoc, the big question was the T-cell receptor. How does the T-cell recognize antigen? Was there one receptor for antigen, one for MHC? We knew this MHC protein, major histocompatibility complex, was very important. 1980, 81, 82, you read the journals, one paper say one. I mean, we just didn't know. 
crystal structure by the late Don Wiley of class one with peptide answered the question. Peptides in class one. T-cell receptor was cloned. So that's been answered. Those are really big fundamental questions in immunology. Uh, regu- how the immune system is regulated, uh, the, reg- the regulatory T-cells, first discovered by Shimon Sagaguchi uh, in the uh, late uh, 80s, was critical for understanding the field. Our laboratory, say though I'm very much an applied immunologist, our laboratory took the fundamental work by Sagaguchi, were able to identify these cells in humans, in healthy humans, and to show later on they were dysfunctional autoimmune disease. Um, so the, the, it's an interesting question about where a field is and what the um, important questions are. Now, I may be a bit biased, but I think the field of immunology is moving more toward the clinical sphere now. We're taking all these fundamental discoveries and applying them to understand human disease. So cancer immunobiology, a very, very big field now. Um, uh, again, synaptic pruning and how the immune system is involved in, 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 in development of the nervous system, a very, very big, big field. So I think there are clearly areas of immunobiology that uh, um, related to other biologic processes are very important and main discoveries yet to be made. But the field's different now than it was in the 80s when the major questions of how does a T cell recognize antigen? That's such a fundamental question, and it's been answered. So <laughs> is immunolo- I guess if, if you were to ask, uh, back in the 70s, I thought immunology was ready for much discovery, and I was able to ride that wave for my career. Uh, if I were starting today, I probably would do neuroscience. Uh, where the fundamental discoveries are yet to, to be made. But, of course, a lot of that may involve immunology. <laughs> yeah, and let, let's, let's go ahead and get, <clears throat> uh, get right into what the, kind of the reason why all of you eat, food eaters out there are listening to this particular podcast and why we're talking to David Hafler kind of revolves around this really, really good, really cool paper um, that you, your lab published in 2013 where you specifically looked at high-salt diet and its kind of influence, (coughs) however that might be, we we can talk about that, or we will talk about that, on MS, multiple sclerosis. Sure. Well, the the, the first question is, how how did we make that uh, connection connection discovery? So we were actually doing a project, uh, Marcus Kleinwoodfeld really gets uh, credit um, as a postdoc in my lab for the, the initial observation, and we're asking, how does the microbiome influence the immune system? So we did a very, uh, we we took a a group of healthy subjects, measured the frequency of inflammatory cells, cells secreting an inflammatory cytokine, which we now know is uh, certainly involved in the process of MS called IL-17. And we're asking, well, how does the microbiome influence production of IL-17? We did a large cohort, uh, did sequencing of the microbiome, looked at the frequency of IL-17 positive cells in the, in, in the blood, and did a simple dietary history. And what we found is if you ate at a fast food restaurant more than twice a week, you had more inflammatory cells. We said, aha, what is under the golden arches? Well, it's basically uh, fried fat and salt at the end of the day. <clears throat> and now we have a very active program looking at different fatty acids, what they do to the immune system. I'll put that aside now. That's another interesting topic. So we did a very simple experiment. In fact, some of it based on other work by Yen Tietze and, and others who are uh, renal doctors and were looking at the effect of salt. And we added salt to the culture. Now, as you all of you in cell biology know, that when you do uh, experiments in cell biology, the concentration of salt that you use, the concentration of salt in the blood and seawater, about 150 mil equivalents of salt. Uh, and that makes sense. Well, it turns out that the concentration of salt uh, in tissue, best studied in skin, is higher, about 190, 180, 190, 200 mil equivalents of salt. So it turns out that the concentration of salt in tissue 
where lymphocytes go when they leave the blood is significantly higher. So when you think about it, you don't want to have inflammation in your blood. It's called septic shock. So you want to condition the blood where the immune system doesn't get activated, but does get activated when it leaves the blood and lymph node goes into the tissue when you have infections or other, or other, or other such events. And so when we added uh, um, 20 milliequivalents of salt, increasing it to the concentration in tissue, there was a remarkable change in the lymphocytes. They went from being very quiescent and non-inflammatory to becoming extremely inflammatory, about a log increase. Uh, not only that, we then fed animals a high-salt diet, which, of course, turns out to be the normal mammalian diet. And the animals with the experimental model of MS went from a limb tail to a quadriparesis. So the disease was much worse. Now, we knew that we were not changing the concentration of salt in the blood by feeding a high-salt diet because you just pee out the salt. But mm-hmm. it turns out that the salt was directly affecting the gut tissue and the surrounding lymphocytes infiltrating the gut. And subsequent studies have been done in uh, models of Crohn's disease and others showing that high salt really exacerbates the disease quite a bit. Now, in parallel, a a dear friend and colleague of mine for over 20 years, Professor Vijay Kutru at Harvard, um, was studying uh, what induces uh, Th17 cells. And... um, uh, he found a particular molecule called SGK1, serum glucocorticoid kinase 1, which is central in the production of this inflammatory cytokine. VJ recognized the fact that uh, this was a salt-sensing kinase. Well, we talked all the time. We have three grants together. And so we were pursuing high salt and what it did in the animal models and what it did to human T cells. And he had this observation about SGK1. Well, we put it together and said, gee, is SGK1 really working? So he worked on it and his own. I, we worked on it. And we published it two papers back to back. The brilliant observation was really the one made by Kutru and the work he did to identify SGK1, but the work uh, came together. He did mouse, as he normally does. We do human, which we normally do, and we knocked out SGK1 in the human cells. He lost the effect of high salt. So we're able to work out the mechanism. Uh, and again, more as I mentioned earlier, recent data suggests that high salt also has an effect on the microbiome, so there are multiple effects. So in this paper that you published, you had some really striking results, uh, especially with the effect of salt on interleukin-17, which is a protein that's uh, really associated with autoimmune disorders like MS. Hmm. Um, But you were also really cautious not to conclude too much about the effects of this diet on humans, uh, since you were only looking at cells in mice. Do you know if there have been any clinical trials that have been started as a result of this paper? Uh, yeah, there's a, a more recent paper published in Nature by Marcus and his colleagues back in Germany uh, in humans showing the effect of high salt. And we have some preliminary data we're just looking at last week in a cohort of healthy individuals fed a high salt diet, and we see remarkable changes in the microbiome leading to a picture that looks like an MS microbiome. So the question is, what? let me jump ahead, what do you say to patients? And... What I say to patients is that uh, we don't know if the high-salt diet really affects MS, but we know a high-salt diet is bad for you in terms of hypertension, uh, in terms of other uh, renal problems. So we suggest that you should be on a healthy diet, avoid the golden arches, avoid high fats and high salt, uh, because we know both those conditions induce inflammation. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, everyone, you know, we were selected out of Africa, out of Eastern Africa, and Western Africa, that is, on a very low salt diet. The average salt intake in Africa was about 200 milligrams a day. The average Western diet is about three grams a day. Uh, this probably relates to the very high incidence of hypertension. It's hard to find people in the 60s who aren't on the mild antihypertensive. And this probably relates to, to diet and the imbalance of salt from what our genetic selection was to our environment. If you think about uh, ability uh, moving out of Africa, we're able to do that in part by using salt uh, to uh, cure food and cure meats and, and, and have them and save them over the winter. 
that was a critical technologic discovery which allowed us to leave the more temperate climates and move into the more frigid tundra of, of, of the north. So high salt is very much uh, integrated into our culture uh, and our ability to, uh, to survive. Getting back to a point I made earlier is not uh, a bad diet, it's not a bad environment, not bad genes, but the interaction of the two. Uh, I think it's very uh, important to note that a high-salt diet will probably only affect a subset of patients who have the genetic predisposition. And again, while the genetics have been relatively easy, working through genetics interacting with the environment is a much more complex uh, puzzle. Uh, to specifically answering your question, there was a study published uh, about three years ago based on um, the work that we're doing, uh, looking at patients with MS, uh, Jorge Corrali, and uh, what he showed that a high salt diet was associated with an increased number of exacerbations in patients with MS in terms of MRI and clinical attacks. Uh, there are flaws in the paper, and it hasn't yet been replicated. So uh, I won't say you have to take the paper with a grain of salt, but I think one has to be careful in terms of interpretation. However, it's not a radical thing to say to a patient, uh, you should be on watch your salt consumption. Easier said than done uh, living in Western society. The other thing I point out to the patient that whereas decreasing salt in your diet may have a modest effect on disease depending upon your genetics, we don't know what those genes are, at the end of the day we have therapies that really work well and probably far outweigh any changes in diet. Yeah, so I, I just think it's so interesting that the if you have a high salt diet or if you eat a high salt diet that it pools in your tissues and then that triggers sort of an autoimmune response. But, I mean, how far, thinking about the brain now specifically, how far does that interaction go? I mean, if it, if it affects your immune system so strongly, could it affect things in the nervous system? A high-salt diet, I mean, like uh, pruning, for example, like synaptic pruning and not just MS. No, I, I think it, it can to the extent that there's migration. There's an equilibrium of cells going from the gut uh, throughout the body, including the brain. Mm. A high-salt diet will not affect the brain per se because your kidney will excrete the high-salt, but it will affect the cells that are in the gut that will then migrate to the brain and may be involved in, in that context. Again, hard to study. The The other interesting way of looking at this is work done, again, by Yen Tietze, who's at Vanderbilt. Uh, who is a uh, worked on salt and is a, is a nephrologist does work on the kidney, and he says to me, "You immunologists have it all wrong. You look at CD4 cells, the cells involved in in an autoimmunity and fighting off infection, cancer. Yeah, maybe they do that, but I look at them as something that senses salt, and they go around the body doing uh, equilibrating salt. I mean, think of you have a cell, not CD8 cells, but CD4 cells are very sensitive to salt, and they go around equilibrating salt, sensing it, and having sodium pumps and adjusting salt. He goes, I think that's the major role of CD4 cells. Uh, an interesting other perspective. We each look under our own lamppost, but he has very convincing data of the critical role of CD4 cells in salt equilibrium throughout the body. I mean, they have license to go everywhere, and they can send things and bring the information back. So another way of looking at the role of the immune system and, and salt. Um, so do you think that the frequency of MS would decrease in a population then if we got everybody to magically decrease their salt intake? <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, um, maybe, um, but again, very, you know, Einstein said, ask the most important question, and that is a very important question, but then ask, uh, ask the question you can answer. Yeah. And uh, the big question we're trying to answer now is, why is it does B-cell depletion work so well? You know, to induce the animal model of multiple sclerosis, if you just take a myelin protein and inject it into the skin or the footpad of a mouse, nothing happens. Same thing if I inject in the two of you, nothing will happen. In order to get an immune response, you have to have an adjuvant in a genetically predisposed uh, host, animal. So my question is, are the B cells the adjuvant? Are the B cells infected? 
with a virus. Maybe it simply is EBV infection, and they become turned on, they become an adjuvant, they present myelin proteins, again, in the host that's susceptible, and that's what leads to the disease. So the most important question I want to answer right now is, what are those B cells doing in the disease? And what's salt doing to the B cells? I can turn you that salt also turns on those B cells. Yeah, so um, just before we, we maybe switch to the fatty acids topic, um, is there, are there really anything, are there other explanations for why there's an increase in autoimmune diseases recently? Uh-huh. I mean, other than high-salt diets. Well, I don't think it's just high-salt. Remember, the high-salt diet's been on, going on for, uh, for hundreds of years. It's, it's not new. Uh, if I had to make a bet, I'd bet on the microbiome mm-hmm. as, as, as probably even more important than salt, or maybe the salt has an influence on it. You know, one always wants to think one's own work is the most important thing, but um, uh, at the end of the day, uh, I have to bet more on the microbiome <laughs> than salt. Okay, uh, so are there, um, how about some other changes to the Western diet um, and our risk of contracting autoimmune disorders, especially like fatty acids? How do fatty acids affect? Well, that's the the whole field of metabolic control of the immune system as you come front and center is a very important uh, area. Uh, We know that inflammatory T cells uh, use glycolysis whereas uh, regulatory T cells use oxidative phosphorylation uh, as a main metabolic pathway. I have a graduate student in my lab looking at different uh, metabolomics in terms of T cell function, how long-chain fatty acids uh, affect uh, T cell function and T reg function, some very dramatic results, uh, which probably relate to the metabolic control uh, of of those cell types. So clearly, uh, in an isolated setting in vitro, long-chain, short-chain fatty acids have major effects on immune cell function. Are they affecting uh, the the patient in terms of diet? Almost certainly, Uh, but we we haven't gotten that far yet. Again, much more difficult to study. But we also know, for example, we did a work, uh, we did some work uh, um, with my colleagues again at the Broad Institute uh, looking at a high-fat diet uh, in mice and probiotics. And uh, it was really kind of neat. We found that if you feed these Swiss mice a high-fat diet, uh, they became obese. Well described. If you look uh, in their fat, um, that fat is full of inflammatory TH17 cells. They lost and they lose regulatory T cells. Uh, that was interesting. You put them on a high probiotic diet, it reverses. So they get less fat, or do they just lose that inflammatory? They, 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 they lose the weight, and they become less inflammatory. Mm-hmm. So that's of interest. Another experiment that we're, we're just writing up now is we said, well, let's look at fat um, in, in MS patients. So uh, we set up a program with a plastic surgeon where we took a group of uh, patients with MS and a series of healthy age match controls, uh, and we did um, liposuction, basically. We put, a, put a, a, a syringe in, and we sucked out some fat tissue here in the abdomen, subcutaneous fat. And we did single-cell RNA sequencing of the T cells, the regulatory T cells, in MS patients versus controls. Well, one thing we know is that when cells go into a tissue, they begin to, to acquire the characteristics of the tissue that they're in. So these Tregs have high numbers of, of, of lipid receptors compared to those in the peripheral blood. That was interesting. But he also found that the, uh, that the regulatory T cells in the fat of MS patients made more inflammatory cytokines compared to the age match control. That's really crazy. Yeah, it's kind of neat. You know, enrolling patients for controls for clinical trials usually isn't that easy. I don't understand when we offered free liposuction, we had absolutely no problem enrolling anyone. And I was the first to volunteer. (laughs) Um, Are there any positive aspects to the Western diet? Um, Like, are there any changes that might protect us from autoimmunity? Well, let's let's flip it that um, maybe more inflammation is good for fighting off cancer. So uh, one of the reasons I'm very careful not to say uh, to, to tell people what to eat is that there are times you uh, boosting the immune system may be good for you. 
uh, and in fact, in some some work done by a number of different laboratories in another animal model of autoimmunity, the NOD, non-obese diabetes model of the diabetes, uh, excuse me, a high-salt diet is protective. So I think we have to be cautious about this is good for you, that's bad for you. I mean, the whole problem with that field uh, is that um, you go from ideas to to uh, clinical predictions, and it's it's a problem with the field of medicine in in general. Don't get me wrong; I think physicians are fine. Some of my best <laughs> friends are physicians, but physicians often uh, take um, uh, extrapolate from very pure in vitro experiments and use it to make pronouncements that what the clinical effects will be. And then the and the whole field of, of dietary science and its effect on human disease suffers from that type of conclusion where people get out and say, well, gee, I did this and this model, look what happens, therefore make broad pronouncements. And this is a very this is society and how we do things. So 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 you won't give us a cure all healthy diet uh, prescription? <laughs> well, it may, you know, it, it depends upon your genetics. So mm-hmm. I, I look at Eskimos. You take Eskimos and uh, who uh, grew up, who were selected in an environment where they get a polar bear every X amount of time uh, in the winter, and they had to hold on to every single fat molecule that they could hold on to in order to survive. That's their genetics. Well, that's fine for living in that environment. You take the same Eskimo, move them to South Florida under the Golden Arches again where there's plentiful fat and salt, and the instance of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, is astronomical. So what makes it really interesting uh, is the uh, we have to look at environmental uh, uh, conditions in relationship to the genetics and because the two are highly integrated. So in terms of finding the right um, cure-all diet, um, you start with what is the genetics of that individual. We select if you're in Western Africa, selected for low salt there, but maybe you, others were selected for migration out of the bottleneck out of Africa and selected to survive better with high salt because of curing food, and they didn't uh, have extreme hypertension, were selected for that. So it, it's the, the, the future of, of medicine is the integration of the environment uh, with the underlying genetics. Um, so what would you say, uh, moving into uh, talking about changing people's diets, what would you say are some of the largest problems that might prevent some of these patients from changing their diets? And how do you approach this when you're talking to them as a doctor? Well, um, people like salt and fat and sugar. It tastes good. <laughs> and uh, and you might not know their, their genetics, right? And you don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is the whole food industry and, and um, you know, the whole issue of fast food. So, I mean, I think one of the fundamental issues uh, is that um, fast food is cheap food. It's a cheap way of getting calories. And um, it's not terribly nutritious. Uh, if if you look on the side of a cereal box, and in terms of amount of sugar and 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 fat and and um, uh, salt, it's it's very very high. And so I think educating consumers uh, about um, processed food. I think it's really processed food more than anything else. Um, and it's moving back to a diet which is more uh, what we were selected on. So, you know, it's it's everything you heard growing up, fresh vegetables, um, you know, getting protein when non, um, when getting right sources of fat. Um, but the, you know, the epidemiologic studies have, have always have been di- often difficult to replicate. And I think we confuse the, the, the population where one year we say, this is good for you, and then there's another epidemiologic study which says, this is good for you. And um, it, I don't think it's really clear to the, to the public about what really is a good diet. We kind of know what a bad diet is. I think it relates to uh, to common sense. Uh, eating at home, uh, fresh vegetables, um, uh, not getting a lot of you know, eating fish, um, and, and not getting a lot of calories from uh, from uh, with saturated fatty acids is probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. But you no, know, I I am not a dietitian, <laughs> so. <clears throat> And uh, yeah, so so thank you so much for your time. And we we wanted to ask just one more question, which which I always really like because you're a physician, you're a scientist, you interact with so many trainees and 
and patience. So do you have any practical advice for, for our listeners, especially maybe for young and aspiring researchers? Hmm. It's a tough one, sorry. No, it's, it's a wonderful <laughs> question. Um, find out what you're passionate about, but also what you're good at doing. <laughs> so it, <Copy> it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, uh, yeah, you have to, um, so that's point one. Um, you, if you're not bitten by the bug of research, don't do it. You have to be just excited about discovery. Uh, two, um, you have to be good at it. You may or may not be good at it. And you have to find out if you're good at it. And it, often it's the idea of jumping ideas. It's about putting different ideas and putting salt and T cells together. It's kind of a crazy idea, but it's a leaping of, of, of different ideas and being uh, sort of creative thinking, not being c- constrained. So that's very important. And the other point, which may not, and that's all obvious. You've heard that. Let me say something that's not obvious. It's about being a scientist. Um, it's a lot of it relates to management. And what makes you good as a graduate student may not make you good as a lab chief. So uh, understand the fact that learning how to, I mean, I'll, I'll, the, to me, the great irony <clears throat> is that um, we generally say to individuals to uh, be a physician, you have to be good working with people and people, all that sort of thing. And scientists, the idea of someone who's isolated working on the, by themselves. And maybe if you're a mathematician or a type, maybe that's true. But my observation is um, when I walk in to see a patient, I'm wearing a white coat, I'm the doctor there, the patient, if you just care a bit and really care a bit about the patient. That's all that's really important. Um, And the skill set required may not be all that great because it's a very well-defined role against the common wisdom. Running a laboratory, my first mentor, Dale McFarlane, had a copy of the psychiatric manual DCM-3 sitting on his desk. And someone would come in and complain about behavior. He'd flip open the book and say, let me show you this behavior over here. So the skill sets in managing people are, in, in fact, really quite complex. So I'm not saying you need to do a management degree, but you, if, if you're going to work in isolation, fine. But most biologists no longer work in isolation. And when you start up a laboratory, there's a real skill set with it. Uh, and remember the fact that the, that the graduate students and postdocs that come with, to work with you, and you look at this when you find mentors, that uh, your job is to help their career, that you work for them, they don't work for you. And understanding the fact that their success is your success and caring for the people around you at every stage of career is really critical because the people who just care about themselves and don't care about anyone else um, have to be a lot better uh, than the people who care because it's really an important part of it. So it's not just being good at what you do and having the creative skill set. Obviously, hard work, uh, um, that's an integral part of anyone's success. Um, but uh, caring about the people around you at every stage of career ends up being very important because you want people to work with you, it quickly gets out uh, if you're caring or not. Thank you so much for that That's advice. Nice. Uh, good <laughs> Try to say something that you missed, obviously. <laughs> yeah. May have yeah, no, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, all right, so with that, it's time to wrap up. Uh, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. Um, join us next month for our next podcast series on medical technology. And thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and for the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to the entire YJBM editorial board. And for more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit medicine.yale.edu slash YJBM. And be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com. If you would like to contact us, email us at yjbm at yale.edu and find our Twitter handle... Uh, at, at the YJBM. <laughs> there we go. Thanks. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we love your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing or tweeting at us. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please share it on SoundCloud or Apple Podcast. See you next uh, month for the next installment of the YJBM podcast.